This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. On the Herd podcast, our goal is educating, empowering, and engaging our listeners, including doctors, in the best ways that we can. We love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community and encourage you to visit their website at www.doctodoclending.com. That's www.doc, the number two, doclending.com forward slash FPD to learn more today. Welcome to season four of The Hurt by the Female Pain Docs. What an exciting time. We've been growing and as I have our downloads, we are once again very thankful for our listeners. Today, we have a very, very special guest. Well, all of our guests are super special, but today we have someone who is a pioneer and visionary specifically in the field of pain medicine, Dr. Allison Shrikande, a board-certified physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist. Dr. Allison Shrikande is the chief medical officer of pelvic rehabilitation medicine. She is also the chair of the Medical Education Committee for the International Pelvic Pain Society, a leading expert on pelvic health and a respected researcher, author, and lecturer. Dr. Srikande is a recognized authority on male and female pelvic pain diagnosis and treatment. She is passionate about this cause and dedicated to helping men and women with pelvic pain who often suffer without anyone willing to listen, understand, or find the cause of their pain. Dr. Srikande has distilled this global expertise into a minimally invasive, cutting-edge approach to the treatment of pelvic pain and pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. She has established peer-reviewed articles on the treatment of muscle pain in academic journals and works closely with renowned pelvic pain gynecologists and urologists. Dr. Allison Srikande currently teaches fall and spring remote courses at the Herman and Wallace Pelvic Rehabilitation Institute. Welcome, Dr. Srikande. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. So today's episode, we will actually focus on painful sex, otherwise known as dyspareunia. And even though this can be applicable to both men and women, in today's episode, we will mostly focus on women with painful sex, but also touch on men with painful sex, although it is less common. So welcome, Dr. Srikande. We appreciate you for being on today's episode. You have a lot of expertise in treating pelvic pain, and we're excited to hear your insight into the dyspareunia. So first, let's talk about the diagnosis of dyspareunia. How is the diagnosis made? Yeah, that's a great question. So dyspareunia essentially is pain either before, during, or after intercourse, essentially. Um, so it's really more of 
uh, a symptom than really a proper diagnosis is really how we look at it, the pelvic rehabilitation medicine. So any sort of discomfort is not normal at all. Um, just around intercourse. And a lot of people have that misconception that it has to be only with deep penetration during intercourse, but it's really any sort of abnormal discomfort before, during, or after is the, is what dyspronia is. And is there any specific time afterwards that would qualify as considered dyspronia? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, we classically uh, give it up to uh, 40, 24, 48 hours, um, but it's very rare for it to last more than you know, 12 to 24 hours, honestly. So, but it's classically within 48 hours, but it would have had to have started within a couple hours after intercourse. It wouldn't be a pain that would, you would have intercourse and then 48 hours later, you would feel something. I see. And you mentioned something very important, which our listeners uh, will want to know a bit more about as well. But dyspronia is often sort of a wide diagnosis that's usually due to something else, or it's a secondary diagnosis of sorts, right? So it's usually related to muscle, nerve, tissue of some sort. So what are these sort of primary causes that can cause dyspronia? For dys dyspronia, we just look at it really as there's organ system causes, right? So there's a, multiple different organ systems in the pelvis. Um, for the females, it's a lot of gynecological issues. There can also be urological issues, gastrointestinal or colorectal issues are kind of the main organ system, um, as well as the male uh, sex organs as well, if it's a man. Um, and then we also have that muscle nerve fascia. Um, that could potentially be a cause. Quite often that is secondary to potentially an organ issue as well. Um, there's hormonal issues that can come uh, depending on um, male, female, and um, the age of the patient. Um, and then of course there's that uh, really biopsychosocial approach. So sometimes there is some underlying um, biopsychosocial issues as well, whether it be a history of trauma, anxiety, uh, depression. Um, they can all affect um, the pelvis as well. So that's kind of how we break it up. Um, and quite often it, there's multiple things going on. So it's, it's, but these are the different kind of categories that we really try to evaluate as potential underlying causes. And that's great to know. And also important for our listeners, because it's not as simple as certain pain conditions like back pain where someone comes in and you just have to kind of look at an MRI or what their symptoms are. When people have pelvic pain, there may be many other physicians that are involved in their care. And how do patients who have dyspernia often get worked up uh, before they even come to PRM? Or if they do come to PRM, pelvic rehabilitation medicine is Dr. Shikande's practice, as we mentioned. So if they were to present at the practice and they hadn't seen anybody, how would that workup go? Um, so as we're, as physiatrists, we're all, um, you know, rehab docs at PRM. Um, so if you're seeing one of our rehab doctors, uh, you would always have, if you're a female, we always have a gynecologist uh, on board, as well as if you're a male, you would always have seen a, a urologist because in the world of what we are doing, um, we are a diagnosis of exclusion. So we would we would always work with and co-treat with another specialist. Uh, and then 
Um, but the classic workup, the classic patient that sees us, the majority of our patients are female. It's about 75% female and the majority, um, if they're complaining about any discomfort around intercourse and they had seen a gynecologist, um, quite often you wanna rule out an, an infection, right? So you wanna rule out any sort of acute infection, um, whether it be in the gynecological realm um, or even in the urological realm, right? Those are the most two common areas that you would have an infection. So you wanna rule out any sort of uh, acute infection. And then also quite often they've had imaging, transvaginal ultrasounds, um, lower abdominal ultrasounds, sounds are very common. Um, uh, some have even have had uh, MRIs, but usually it's, a, it's an ultrasound. Um, and so um, also sometimes there is some basic kind of blood work done as well, um, but really is rule out any sort of um, in infection of the gynecological tract and urological tract, as well as any underlying potential um, disease processes that could be contributing. Um, the challenge on that is that this is our most common kind of patient, a bread and butter patient. And this is our most common chief complaint that we see all day is pain around intercourse. Um, the challenge is certain um, underlying gynecological issues, particularly endometriosis, uh, which is uh, the most common gynecological condition we see and treat is quite often uh, not, you're not able to diagnose it without uh, going in and taking a look with the laparoscopic surgery. So uh, that is the big challenge, I think, in this is that the, the workup's normal. And um, so then we really have to take a step back and delineate you know, what's going on. And a lot of it's just, we see it all day, every day. So just getting really good at taking a good history um, and, and, and doing a good exam. You can tell a lot from the history and exam. And what are some of the common causes of dyspareunia essentially that you see in the practice? Um, so again, for the, for the female realm, the most common is underlying gynecological issues, usually endometriosis, but, or adenomyosis is very common. Um, and sometimes it can be secondary too. We do see fibroids, PCOS, but it really is mostly adeno and endo. Um, and then we do also see um, that secondary chronic guarding of the pelvic floor musculature um, and that nerve inflammation, right? That neurogenic inflammation that comes with this. Um, that's almost always involved in our patient population. It's just a matter of trying to get to that underlying primary pain generator. Is there something causing, what is causing this hypertonic pelvic floor, that spastic pelvic floor and those nerves to be so inflamed? And everyone's reasonings are different, right? So it's just trying to delineate how they got there. Sometimes it's you know, they had multiple UTIs or yeast infections in a row and that primed them. And then they're also clenching because they're stressed. And then potentially they could have some lifestyle where they're long work hours or sitting on the subway often. Um, think you really just have to put the picture together or you have to think, okay, they have autoimmune issues and a family history of a mother with a hysterectomy and um, potential family history of endo. And then you have to say, what, what do you think is going on? So that's the, that's the real key. We're very, you know, we're, we're versed in treating the nerve muscle dysfunction, but what I think in addition we bring to the table is just that diagnostic skill, because if you really need to get to the bottom of it, A, to really have patients have a deeper understanding, and then B, to really create this plan as best as you can, that's really going to be more of a long-term play. I think that's great. And you mentioned this long-term plan and having many sort of aspects to the, to the treatment plan, which is very important for many pain conditions, but especially for pelvic pain, because there can be many sort of uh, muscles, tissue, nerves involved, like you mentioned. 
And um, just to sort of also let our listeners know, you are a physiatrist, which is um, a, pub, uh, excuse me, a rehabilitation physician, and uh, I'm an interventional pain physician, so I'm anesthesiology trained and then did my pain fellowship. So we have a lot of overlap, but also differences in terms of what we are uh, treating and how we look at the patients as well. But all of that is necessary, I think, in terms of treating the pain. And in terms of the treatment, I would love for our listeners to know um, how you would prescribe certain interventions. So we spoke about you know, addressing the muscles and the tissues and the nerves, but what are some interventions that may be necessary for dyspernia? Right. So uh, definitely, that's a great question. I mean, conceptually for the, our patient population for this uh, specific symptom, it's that multimodal interdisciplinary approach that, you know, has been proven to be the most effective. Um, and it's been great in the past couple of years. There's been excellent kind of studies backing that up. So it's, it's easier now because everyone's on board, right? Who are, who's treating this. Um, so what that really means is really working uh, multiple modalities at the same time. Um, the classic place to start would be pelvic floor physical therapy, kind of starting there um, when and integrating some um, breathing exercises uh, with your pelvic floor physical therapy, um, as well as your home exercise program. And then essentially, if that helps, but not helps, but not 100%, you know what I mean? It moves the needle a little bit, but you're, it's not all the way. Then we classically do multiple things at once. We continue your pelvic floor PT. Um, then we'll do medications as needed, uh, either oral or suppository. And then we have an outpatient ultrasound guided protocol to just really address any underlying neurogenic inflammation and, and hypertonicity of the pelvic floor. I would say is it's really rehabilitating the pelvis. It's we tell patients you're like an iPhone. It's all about kind of rebooting, resetting because the nerves have kind of gone haywire. Um, so we need to reboot and reset. And really the focus is on the nerves. I'd say as physiatrists, we're, we're really peripheral nerve experts is how I would view us. I mean, the muscles are super important too, to kind of release, but it's all about just releasing the specific nerves that are often involved. And quite often there's multiple um, given the cross sensitization that does happen in the pelvis, right? They talk to one another. So they're upregulating one another constantly. Um, so that kind of is the key concept in terms of treating the pelvis. I really, really like that. The resetting to factory settings, because it's true. There's just been so much stress essentially on the pelvic floor and much is needed to kind of get it back to normal. And um, so you mentioned suppositories. What are the differences in terms of vaginal versus rectal suppository for certain sort of patient diagnoses that they might need one versus the either? Yeah, that, that's definitely a great question. So, well, sometimes it's patient preference. Um, with, with rectal suppositories, there will be increased blood supply, given the blood supply to the rectum. So um, you will kind of feel it more, a stronger, faster effect there. Um, but classically, rectal is for, if there's more posterior kind of coccyx sitting pain, we'll say, how about you take it rectally? Or if on our exam, that posterior compartment really needs some, some help. Um, or they don't feel comfortable vaginally because they don't like the discharge vaginally. Sometimes that's an issue. Um, they'll, we'll try it rectally. Um, but really a lot of it is patient, patient preference. What about for patients, because this is a question I get as well, but what about patients when they have their period, if they prefer to take it vaginally, would you recommend them to, to convert to rectally for that time? We usually suggest convert to rectally, um, particularly if they have a heavier period. 
Um, but it's not impossible if, if your period's on the medium to light side to continue taking it vaginally. Um, so, so again, we do, we do let them know, don't worry, don't stop. I mean, the, the thing is, if it's part, the way we look at our meds in general, everything we're doing, it's like, we want to treat you. We're kind of throwing the kitchen sink and then we want you off, right? It's just, nothing's a long term. Um, so it, it's not great if you're having your menstrual cycle in the middle of our treatment. So we do say, don't stop it. Keep taking it until we tell you to stop you. You know, so that is the key is keep taking it. And if vaginal is really not an option, then, um, we, you know, try rectally. And, uh, Pelvic floor trigger points are something else that can be part of the multimodal treatment plan. Uh, could you tell our listeners a bit more about the different types of trigger points and what might be used for sort of what type of diagnosis? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, for us, we, most everybody, our whole theory and everything kind of we're publishing on is conceptually treating the muscle dysfunction, right? The hyperspastic hypertonic pelvic floor with the peripheral nerves and the central nervous system, but all at once, right? So we don't typically separate it out because conceptually the trigger points are specifically to release the, the nerves. So everything's happening concomitantly is I guess what I'm trying to say. It's rare that you would do just a trigger point. I don't think it would be that effective um, unless, I mean, sometimes classically we're again, releasing the spasm in the muscle where the nerves flow. I guess it's simple as that. Um, that's what we're doing. So it's, it's targeted to where the, the nerves lie, it, the muscle compression of the nerve, it's squeezing it. So we need to just release it and create more space. Um, in, addition, uh, in addition to that, we would also sometimes add trigger points to specifically the external rotators of the hip are an issue with our patient population, right? Um, given the anatomy, uh, again, of the nerves and uh, how the pelvis works. So quite often we'll treat those external rotators, the, the piriformis, obturator internus, quadratus femoris. Um, those are the, the main culprits. Um, and then Sometimes you could add trigger points to the lower abdomen, rectus abdominis uh, if needed, um, but conceptually it's more of an additive if, if, if really targeting where the pinching the nerves is not enough, we may just add one, one or two more. And any differences between like a local anesthetic injection versus a Botox, when would one be preferred over the other? Yeah, I mean, conceptually, our protocol PRM is it's more kind of functional restorative, right? We're, we're rehabbing, so it's different that way. So we, for us, Botox is uh, would be mo more of a last resort because it, uh, if it's secondary effect of causing weakness, right? It's freezing the muscles, um, so we don't love to do that because we really are trying to our first kind of six, four to six weeks, we call it down training, where we're freeing up the nerves, relaxing that hypertonic. Uh, pelvic floor. But then after that, we're, we need a neuromuscular re-education where the nerves start to talk to the muscles again. You start to get, you know, the, the, the pelvic floor, levator ani muscles uh, lifting and firing, the hip abductors firing again. And then of course, those deep muscles of the spine, the multifidi, long dismiss, but all of it needs to be working. It's like a house. Mm -hmm. um, and then so if you, so we, we don't, we're hesitant to freeze any of it if we don't. So, that, so it's definitely not our first thought. Um, it's, it's really for patients who certain patients, um, certain ones, sometimes there are some colorectal anal fissure things we'll see that, that we would want. Sometimes Botox is very helpful for that. Um, and certain kind of more, uh, challenging vaginismus patients, maybe, um, that those are kind of the two situations, but overall it's more 
nerve muscle trigger point peripheral nerve block creates space rehab um, and then Botox is is more of a last resort for us because of that. And um, could you tell us a bit more about the peripheral nerve blocks as well? Because the interventional pain approach is different a little bit than the uh, than the rehab <laughs> approach in terms of what machines we use as well. Yeah, that's it. We are we use ultrasound, so we're using uh, external ultrasound guided um, procedures, and we are just treating every nerve that really exists there. Um, anything, any, uh, I guess the pudendal nerve would be the main nerve of the pelvis, of course, but there are branches of it, uh, the, the inferior rectal, the perineal, the dorsal nerve to either the, the clitoris or the penis, depending. Um, and then of course you have the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, um, as well as the lateral femoral cutaneous, ilioinguinal, genitogrexion, really any nerve there. Anything that exists in the pelvis um, is what we would treat nerve-wise, uh, given that is kind of our main, I mean, we don't typically block the motor, so the operator, we're not um, blocking, um, as well as the femoral, we wouldn't block that either. Uh, but we do see issues, you know, we see a lot of hernias, right? So we do always have to be in the back of our mind, is there an obturator hernia, right? So when it's only um, radiating to the medial thigh, not responding as well to your classic nerve blocks. It's something to always keep in mind. Then we've seen femoral hernias as well, but hernias are very common in our patient population. So anyone treating pelvic pain, it's definitely something to always be aware of. And uh, you mentioned making space around the nerve. Would you tell us a bit more about that in terms of the different types of injections that can create the different um, space around the nerves? Yeah, it's, just, it's essentially high volume um, targeted at the fascia, uh, fascial release around where the, it's classic nerve blocks, but it's just higher volume and um, targeted at the restrictive fascia. So it's a type of hydrodissection, essentially, putting saline or local anesthetic around the nerve? That's correct. Um, we are, it, it, yes, we do anesthetic. Uh, we would only add saline for volume if you need it, right? Um, and then we do steroid um, a little bit of it, the steroid, depending on, you know, we don't use too much. You just need a little bit, usually at the beginning. So this is all great information for, for, our, for our listeners who have dyspronia, especially because there is such a multimodal approach in terms of having the muscles and the nerves uh, addressed, especially with the hydrodissection technique that you had mentioned. Um, any differences based on what we've spoken about so far between men presenting with dyspronia and the differences in treatment? No, honestly, I started off, it said women's musculoskeletal health a while back now. And um, yeah, a man showed up and as a physiatrist, I'm like, yeah, you know, we can totally, we can do this for, I mean, it's, it's very similar. So no, it's actually, I guess in terms of the treatment, it's not, I mean, in terms of our treatment, people, it's very different in terms, it's a small needle. People see us at 8.30 in the morning, they're at their 9.30 meeting. I mean, it's not, it's no minimal downtime. It's really, um, yeah, you just keep going on with your day. You can go to dinner that night, things like that. So that is all the same, men, women. I'd say for what's different for a man is you just have to understand the different diagnoses. So for women, um, again, gynecological is something to always be thinking about and not miss because so many delayed diagnoses, particularly of endometriosis, we don't want to be contributing to that delay um, as experts in the field. But uh, for men, a lot of hip hernia combos and quite often they come together. It's just that shearing that can happen once you have one or the other, the compensatory mechanics that can happen. Um, so it's more of how the men got there. Um, a lot of chronic prostatitis, 
um, history, you know, of multiple rounds of antibiotics, things like that. So that's really, again, very important to understand the story, get to the primary underlying pain generators. It's just as important as treating our patients. Um, but the treatment doesn't really differ too much other than really just the hormonal component, right? And understanding that is a little bit different. Especially, I think um, we've spoken about men and women, but I think this is another area of medicine that is progressing. And I'm sure you've seen patients uh, for this as well, but how do you take into consideration transgender medicine patients, patients who are presenting for post-op pain or just like other sort of hormonal differences that are exacerbating their pain? Yeah, that can be, it is a challenge. We um, are still kind of learning, but essentially post-operatively for our transgender patient population, we are treating any residual, again, nerve inflammation, right? Nerve and muscle dysfunction um, that's going on. Uh, so, but, but the hormonal component, that's the piece that I struggle with, just really understanding that at a deeper level. Um, and how that how the surgery has affected the HPA access, the autonomic nervous system, the um, heart rate variability, right? Which is all things that we're tracking and really trying to understand with our patient population. So I think that's a real challenge. Um, and I think we're still learning. But in terms of really treating that nerve pain, that nerve inflammation, that muscle spasm, muscle dysfunction, it's conceptually very similar. And you would still consider like peripheral nerve blocks, essentially uh, pedental nerve blocks and hydrodissection as usual. No, we've seen many nationally now um, across the country. Uh, so yes, yeah, we, it is, we are, yeah, we are doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's great to know that there are more and more physicians who are seeing transgender patients for, for post-op pain or for pain in general, because I feel like, you know, that, that wasn't as widely available before. So I'm very happy to see that. Um, and then what would you say is the biggest delay for treatment for everybody, men, women, everybody, what would you say is, are some of the barriers you've seen over the years? I think it's taboo to talk about it. Right. And people often feel, um, that, you know, they're broken and and they really don't even want to tell, you know, their own spouse or partner, because they just don't want to let anyone down uh, or feel like they're not, you know, worthy. So I, that, that's a very big challenge. And then a lot of times they finally get over that challenge or they confide in their healthcare provider. And, you know, I think uh, in our medical uh, training, it's just, it's just, it's not there. The training is not provided for our patient population. So that, that again, can be a challenge for everybody. You know, everyone's trying to help their patients. It's just the, the, they call it the black box of pelvic pain for a reason. You know, a lot of it's these processes and, um, and we don't know, um, and it's, we just have a lack of training. So I think that's contributing as well. Um, and I, I really do think it's, it's just important for us to make it less taboo, talk about it, talk about the importance of it. Um, because with pain also comes sexual dysfunction, um, right. And orgasmia, and there's talk of infertility. There's just so much there that, and I think as medical professions, Uh, we are still really learning about all of it. I really, I think there's so much to learn still. Um, And I really think the big one is endometriosis. It's just myself. I have made that mistake where diagnosing patients. When I first started with pedental neuralgia, um, you know, velvodynia, a lot of it, you just have to make sure you're, you have endo on your mind because um, once you make the mistake a couple of times, then yourself, then you just say, oh my gosh, can't believe I missed that. And they came to see me as a specialist. So I would just 
um, really anyone out there seeing our patient population with pain around in a course, for sure, um, have it on your mind. Absolutely. And what would you say is the prognosis of, of many patients? Obviously, the diagnosis can vary for dyspernia, but the prognosis in general with a good multimodal approach with an interdisciplinary team? Yeah, it's very good. I mean, again, it just depends on the underlying um, cause, but excellent, 100%. I mean, we do this all day, every day. So it, and if it's only that, you don't also have bladder, bowel, other stuff going on. And also it's much easier, right? And then also if we get you early, you know, a lot of it's just our whole mission really is just getting getting patients in the door early and treated early before you even get to that chronic pain cycle. Uh, that's when we have the best success really is when we just get there early, address it, squash that everything before it even goes into that vicious cycle. So excellent prognosis, um, uh, unless there's really an underlying kind of chronic disease process. But again, we're at this point and we can figure it out, right? I, I, I did harp on endo. The other one we do see is hypermobility connective tissue issues in our patient population. Uh, it's about 35% of chronic pelvic pain patients have that. So that's something else to consider um, if the patient's not responding. I think you give a lot of hope to patients, especially the listeners who are uh, hearing this, because oftentimes, like you said, they feel broken and they feel stigmatized or ashamed, but there's, there's help available. There is nothing to be ashamed of. And it's, it's empowering for patients to know that there is hope and that they're, they can get better. So I'm glad to hear that. Where can our listeners find you? Sure. It's at pelvicrehabilitation.com. Uh, we're now in uh, 13 different cities, eight states. So New York City, Englewood, New Jersey, uh, Florham Park, New Jersey, Long Island, New York, um, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, as well as Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Detroit, Michigan, and um, Miami, Florida. Now, so and and growing, um, and we're also in West Palm Beach, uh, Miami, and West Palm. So yeah, it's it's such a need, and it's so great to see uh, women physicians like you getting into this. I mean, I just really think a rising tide rises all ships here. I mean, awareness is our biggest challenge. Just awareness and letting patients know that there is hope. You don't have to live with this, um, you know. So, in seeing people who completely see this all day, every day, um, we'll just get you on the path to figuring out, you know, how to how to get you better. That is an excellent note to end this episode on, and we really appreciate you for coming on our episode today. And I think our listeners learned a lot about painful sex, dyspareunia, and we're we're happy to share this information with them. Thank you. Thank you. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.